0: This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists.
1: Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav
0: Rajpurkar. And I'm Adriel Saporta.
1: And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Varun Ganapati, co-founder and CTO at ACASA, which aims to simplify revenue cycle management with automation and machine
0: learning. So let's start with you explaining to me what revenue cycle management is. Yeah. So revenue cycle management is the
1: name for the process by which providers get paid for the services they provide. And given, for example, the different insurance coverage patients have, the variation in procedures and guidelines different insurers have for reimbursing providers, and the complexities of medical
0: coding, this is quite an involved process. Okay. So... Basically, the goal for providers is to be reimbursed correctly for the services that they provide. And it sounds like we're talking about traditional fee-for-service or volume-based care here.
1: Yeah. Revenue cycle management looks different in the value-based care paradigm, but fee-for-service still makes up the vast majority of healthcare in the US, so we're just going to focus on that today. So in that context, some primary goals for providers are to minimize time to payment, and the number of claims that are denied. How often are claims denied, and why? Well, according to a recent survey by a consultancy, Harmony Healthcare, claim denials have hit an all-time high, and 33% of hospitals report claim denial rates of 10% or more.
0: Huh, and I can imagine that this would have a huge impact on a hospital's bottom line. And even if they successfully overturn the denial, that probably would still require quite a bit of overhead.
1: Exactly. So some of the big reasons for denial are that the visit isn't quoted correctly, the service isn't covered at all, or it wasn't correctly preauthorized.
0: Can we go into some more depth on each of those?
1: Yeah. So let's start with medical coding. In order to get reimbursed, providers need to document and submit the patient's diagnosis and what tests and services were provided. And to allow insurers to process this, they record each of these diagnoses and procedures using a standardized coding system. For example, a hemoglobin test might have a CPT code of 83036. To give a sense of how complex the system is, there are almost 70,000 different codes just for diagnosis alone. And medical coding is an entire
0: career in itself. Okay, so the risk is that a provider can order a test and then document the wrong code, or one that isn't specific enough?
1: That's one risk. But it's even more complicated than that. Insurance will only reimburse for that test if it is deemed medically necessary. And in order to ensure that, the visit must also be submitted with a relevant diagnosis code. So for example, when an insurer sees that a hemoglobin test was ordered, they'll also check to see if a patient was, for example, coded to have diabetes. And they'll make sure the test hasn't been ordered too frequently.
0: Okay. And so I imagine there might be some sort of like database that maps all of these procedural codes with the diagnosis codes that would make them medically necessary. Somewhat.
1: Well, let's start with Medicare. Medicare has a list of national coverage determinations, which are basically that they describe the circumstances for Medicare coverage nationwide for a specific medical procedure or device. Some outside party, say a medical professional association or a manufacturer, will request a national coverage determination for some new procedure. And if CMS determines that it is medically necessary, it will become a new national guideline.
0: And so where does the extra complication come in?
1: Well, CMS does not directly administer Medicare nationwide, it contracts to a number of regional private insurers. And if there isn't a national guideline, then these contractors are free to create their own definitions for what is medically necessary. And on top of that, private insurance plans, so anything not administered by CMS, are not bound by these national coverage determinations at all. A study from 2015 found that private insurers disagreed with Medicare over determinations covering medical devices about half the time.
0: What regulates these private insurance plans then?
1: Well, in short, the Affordable Care Act or state laws, whichever provides more protection. The Affordable Care Act established a set of essential health benefits that all health plans nationally must cover, categories like mental health services and prescription drugs. Each state then bases the specific minimal coverage requirements on a benchmark plan, which varies by state. And again, if there are state laws that provide more protection, those take precedence.
0: Okay. So there is a high-level framework for what insurance plans need to cover, but it still sounds like there's enormous room for variation between different insurers. Like, What if my doctor thinks something is medically necessary, but my insurance disagrees?
1: Yeah, so
0: the Affordable
1: Care Act did establish the right to appeal to both the insurance company and by a third-party reviewer. If a treatment is new or doesn't have very strong clinical evidence, though, it will likely be an uphill battle. But note that these decisions are overturned quite frequently, especially if they're due to an administrative
0: error. Okay. So to recap, a provider might not be reimbursed if they don't code a diagnosis and procedure correctly. But even if they do code them correctly, reimbursement standards will change based on what insurance a patient has. And is there like a process by which insurers notify providers if they'll be reimbursed before they provide the service? Right. So
1: this is called prior authorization. For a number of different non-emergency procedures, insurers will actually require providers to receive authorization before they perform the service. And if they don't get this prior authorization, they won't be reimbursed at all, even if the procedure would have been deemed necessary based on the diagnosis.
0: Okay, so prior authorization sounds like it makes enough sense. Yeah, in theory,
1: but it has a lot of problems. The process for receiving prior authorization isn't standard across different insurers, so it can require a bit of work. According to a recent survey done by the American Medical Association, 85% of physicians found the burden associated with prior authorization to be fairly high. They spent a cumulative 16 hours a week on them with their staff, and 40% have staff exclusively devoted to prior authorization.
0: And I, I feel like I know the answer to this question already, but does this prior authorization burden directly impact patient care? Well,
1: according to that same survey, 94% of patients reported it causing delays and 30% said it led to a serious adverse event for
0: a patient in their care. Yikes. And what are some of the things that could be done to help improve the process? In 2018, a number of leading medical associations and
1: insurers issued a consensus statement calling for reform. A few things they agreed to were increased automation and standardization in order to improve transparency and efficiency of the process and provide better protections for patients' continuity of care.
0: Wow, I'm surprised that medical associations and insurers are agreeing on something. (laughs) Okay, so I'm sure that there are more reasons for claim denials out there and other aspects of the revenue management cycle that need to be optimized. But each of these aspects already, medical coding, medical necessity, prior authorization, they all seem extremely complicated just by themselves, which is perfect for sophisticated automation.
1: Yeah, it's always really fascinating to see how tech can fit in at this crux. And we're really excited to chat today with Dr. Varun Ganapathy about how Akasa is helping to simplify this process. Dr. Ganapathy received his PhD in AI from Stanford before co-founding two companies acquired by Google and Udacity, and then co-founded ACASA in 2019. Varun, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Pranav. Glad to be here. So I want to start by asking you what the meaning of RCM is.
2: RCM stands for Revenue Cycle Management, and it's the process by which health systems and providers manage the paperwork required in order to collect payment for the services they provide. In an earlier podcast, you discussed an annual trillion-dollar tug-of-war. The RCM department is on the provider side. They're pulling on that rope as hard as they can. And the insurers or the payers are on the other side of that rope. And essentially, the RCM is part of that tug of war on the provider side. And paying for all of that software and people to do that costs up to 7% of that patient revenue per year, you know, which is $70 billion. So it's a lot of money.
1: So as a patient, when I uh, come in for uh, a medical procedure, do I get to see any part of the RCM or is that all behind the scenes for me?
2: Ideally, you would all be behind the scenes from you, but it is not in practice. Um, what can happen is if everything goes well, you will just get bills that you don't understand about, you know, I have to pay a certain amount for my coinsurance, my copay, and, you know, my deductible. it'll seem like a big number and you'll just hope that the bill is correct and you'll pay it. That's like generally, you know, and, the, and hopefully that bill will be right. In the worst case, as a patient, you will get a surprise bill that is much larger than you expected. Another place where you might encounter the RCM, which I actually encountered myself is, say you wanna go get an MRI, like the doctor will say, you, know, you should get an MRI for this or that. They'll apply for what's called prior authorization and it may get denied. And then you'll have to go through all of these hoops where you try to somehow convince the insurance company that you should in fact get this thing that you actually need. And hopefully it will happen. And, you know, after some delay, like of a few weeks, you'll finally get the thing that you wanted. So that's kind of how patients probably will encounter RCM today. Health systems are trying to provide estimation tools so that when you go in, you can actually get a reasonable estimate for how much a procedure or whatever you're about to do will actually cost. Those tools are not super accurate because of the complexity in all of this, which is part of what we're trying to solve but those are sort of the different ways that you'll deal with RCM. And of course, you know, you'll know, you get asked for your insurance card literally every time you go to the health system so that they make sure that they really know who they can charge and so on. So those are sort of some of the ways, the good and the negative ways uh, that, you know, a patient would encounter RCM. I guess all of those were negative actually. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: And who are like the big RCM players
2: today? So before Acosta comes into the picture. Generally to a large extent, health systems do RCM themselves. So they have software like Epic and Cerner. And as you know, actually one of your earlier podcasts talked about essentially how that software is really intended to facilitate billing, right? Like that's part of its point is that to record all the information required for billing, in addition to, of course, keeping track of patient records so that doctors know what they did before and things like that. A large part of it is really to manage the billing process. And so RCM generally is done by providers in a separate department within the health system using Epic or Serger or these other tools in order to uh, manage that process. So it's generally done in-house. There are some outsourced vendors for RCM as well. There's like a long set of those, but generally people use the software to do it internally. Okay. So now tell us how ACASA
0: fits in here. So how are you guys automating all of this?
2: What we do at ACASA is essentially sell a self-driving cyber truck to healthcare providers to help them with the tug or broke, with the payers. The way it works is we provide AI that connects into a health system and operates within their existing EHR and infrastructure the same way a normal person would. It's essentially like you're hiring an AI worker to help you do the work of revenue cycle management. The benefit of that is AI can learn from everything that's done before and essentially memorize all of the myriad complex set of rules that are occurring. And of course, software is cheaper than people, right? And so you can afford to actually do more to ensure that things are done correctly in the first place rather than just dealing with errors after they take place. And so it helps optimize this entire process, decrease the amount of human work that needs to be done. And essentially, the net result of this is that patients don't get surprise bills providers get paid without having to spend all of this time and effort doing this work. Essentially, we can help make this entire system way more efficient by decreasing the amount of labor involved. Could you
1: talk about maybe a couple of tasks that are done as part of an RCM system, what people did that now the uh, AI is able to do?
2: So I'll start from the easier ones and go to the more complex ones. You know, every time you go to the doctor, generally they'll scan your insurance card, Someone has to type that information in. Surprisingly, a large number of errors occur because of typos in that process of typing it in. And then after even it's typed in, um, someone has to go do an eligibility check in order to confirm that your insurance is valid and what are the dates that it's valid. So that essentially helps make sure that the health system is aware of your insurance status. So that's a workflow we can completely automate. Another workflow is once the health system submits a claim, they need to confirm that the correct insurance actually received that claim. And sometimes insurance will say, we need additional information. We can actually automate the entire process of checking the status, getting the issue from the insurance company, figuring out like what needs to be fixed. You know, if there's additional information requested or whatever, and we can actually go get that information from the health system, automatically submit it. One process that occurs is essentially checking a claim before it goes out the door to make sure that it's not going to get denied. You know, we can use machine learning to essentially predict denials. And th- there's a lot more, you know, prior authorization is another big thing you may have heard about, which is that doctors or nurses have to submit a bunch of information to justify requesting a service before it happens. We can automate that process. So we can essentially figure out what information needs to be provided, submit that to the insurance company, and get the prior auth code that is needed to be put on the claim. And something that we've been working on and are able to do now is actually even handle denials to some extent. So if uh, a denial comes back and it's for a, a specific set of reasons, we can actually automatically fix the claim, resubmit it, make sure it's done correctly, or we can handle appealing the claim. So if there's an issue like a medical necessity issue, or there's sometimes these cases where the insurance says, I need to know what the other insurance company paid in order to know what I need to pay. And so there's just a bunch of information that needs to be pulled from one source and added and sent to a second one. There's just a lot of stuff that we can do.
1: Oh, that's great. And it's so clear there's so much opportunity for helping streamline the workflow here. Now I want to ask about a term that you use called unified automation. What do you see as the role of unified automation and what role do people play in this workflow that you're building?
2: Great question. So unified automation is a term we invented in order to describe our methodology for automating a complex task and providing extremely high quality output throughout the entire process. It's basically a general idea for how we go about leveraging human in the loop while we start to automate a task. And so the idea is essentially there's a bunch of work to be done. We can start to develop models that can handle a large percentage of the work relatively quickly because these are very common cases that are occurring. So when something occurs very frequently, you know, it's a completely standard thing that happens like very often, you know, automatically that will be present in our data set. You know, a lot more. So we'll get a lot of data for it. We can develop a model that can automate that thing. And then that work no longer has to be done by a person. The remainder though is sent to people. The people will then label that data and that provides more information to the machine learning model. It then learns to automate the next most common task and so on. So essentially you're kind of walking down the tail of complexity. In the self-driving world analogy, um, you know, I was an advisor to Zook's, um, a self-driving car company. And What's interesting about the self-driving car is that you can't put a self-driving car on the road until you solve the entire problem, unfortunately, right? Like, because you have to make decisions in split seconds that could be life or death. What we can do here is actually a little bit better is that we can handle, you know, highway driving and have nobody even involved for the highway driving situation and then only pull a person in when we need to take it off ramp. So it's sort of that we can bring together AI and humans to accomplish the entire task very efficiently. So that's what we call unified automation.
0: So is your data set on a per customer basis? So if you're building out a model or a suite of models for one customer, are they gonna have a data set or are their models gonna be trained only on data from their own hospital system or their own process?
2: Generally, we work with extremely large health systems. So they have a lot of data. Yes, as the answer to your question, we train the models on each customer's own data for two reasons. First, it provides an extremely disciplined process to ensure that the quality is high. Rather than just taking a pre-baked model, applying it to a new situation, and it may not generalize very well, you know, automatically when you do training and testing, you know, there's a procedure by which you, you evaluate your test set performance. You can actually ensure that you're performing well. So that's the first part. The second part is what we found is that there's a lot of nuances from customer to customer. For instance, one health system versus another will have entirely different insurance cards because they're in a different state, right? And so the insurance cards will look different. Other examples are the doctors might take notes in a slightly different way for like medical coding. The insurance plans that are present are present with different frequencies in different places, right? And so you need to sort of learn what are the local rules for that particular health system. So everything we do is trained essentially for every health system in particular We're leveraging machine learning to automatically customize the product, essentially at scale. So going back to unified automation then, and and
0: when you mentioned sort of the humans labeling your data set, are they doing it knowingly, or are they just doing it in the normal process of their workflows anyway, and they happen to be labeling your data set
2: along the way? Both happen. So... Uh, We have two types of data. One set of data is like retrospective data. Essentially we can pull data out of the EHR. And so that's like essentially data that has been already created for us that we don't have to label, but some human has labeled it, right? Um, And so we can pull that out and train on that. Some data is like for our denial prediction algorithm. It's like claims are sent out to insurers, insurers deny or pay for them. That provides a data set automatically. But then the third type is actually our labeler. So we provide a full stack solution. It's like RCM as a service. And behind the scenes within our company, we have AI and humans. The humans are labelers. We've designed the system so that when they're doing the work, they're actually super efficient. So we have an internal piece of software that allows them to label the data very efficiently. When they label it, they're actually completing the work. Like we're actually completing workflows through the labeling process. Okay. But when they're doing that, they're still training our algorithms also at the same time. And we have this process by which we go from uh, what we call full manual mode, which is still much more efficient than doing it in the EHR, but it's more manual to co-pilot mode to autopilot mode. In co-pilot mode, the algorithms are auto-completing everything. The person just has to say correct or not. And then in full autopilot mode, we skip humans entirely for a large percentage of the tasks. And so for every task, we sort of move up this curve from automation plus manual labeling uh, for anything that involves human intelligence to fully automated. I think this is so
0: awesome because I think that often in healthcare, when we think about AI, we think about disease diagnosis or prognosis prediction or risk stratification, and we sort of forget that this area is about human labor. And I know that one of your investors, Julie Yu, who's a general partner at A16Z, she was writing about their decision to invest in ACASA. And and she had mentioned that the ratio of doctor to non-doctor workers in healthcare is 1 to 16, which is... (laughs) bananas to me. And like, you know, like we wonder why healthcare costs are skyrocketing in the US. And I guess my question though, when I'm thinking about sort of like how to automate this process is that even this process that you're describing sounds very involved and hands-on, right? Like every customer has a whole suite of different algorithms that are specific to that hospital system. And so it's automated, but it's not necessarily so easily scalable from a CASA standpoint. You know, it's it's like, it's like scalable from the hospital system standpoint, but not from your guys' standpoint as a company. Is that sort of a a
2: tension that you guys are, are worried about, or is that
0: okay? Or how do you handle that?
2: It's a great question. And it's something that we work on internally. What we've learned is that there are relatively standard workflows. And while it is true, we need to update our models for any given customer. This is not dissimilar from how Netflix is optimizing its recommendation engine for every given viewer of Netflix, right? Like in some sense, you have a completely different Netflix feed than I do, right? Based on what you've watched previously, take Facebook with their newsfeed, take Google with advertising. Every part of the internet right now is using machine learning to personalize content to billions of consumers. There are individual models essentially trained per person, right? You know, we won't call it a model being trained. Maybe that sounds like, you know, a very big thing. Maybe it's just a vector in a n-dimensional space that's like tuned for you and that vector mm. helps you do the work. But effectively, that is the great power of machine learning is that it enables you to be scalable while also being personalized. And that's what we take advantage of at Acasa is that we can have one system that's automatically personalizing to the extent that it's not as scalable is the labeling part, right? Like the fact that we have to label in some cases, some amount of data per customer, that is for sure, you know, just part of the cost we bear. I think it's okay though, because if you look at other cloud businesses, let's say AWS, Amazon Web Services, um, when you use Amazon Web Services, they have a data center. In that data center, there are still a lot of people actually, like, you know, part of what they're doing for you is dealing with if a server breaks down, someone gets sent out there to pull the server out, fix it, put a new one in, right? So there are all these people in the system, keeping it working, even though from your perspective, it's just an automated system. That is what our labelers are to us. Essentially, it's like the human portion, which is still far less than the human portion needed by each of these health systems themselves, in order to uh, facilitate the automation at scale. So uh, I think it is very scalable because machine learning enables you to to do this, essentially. Like, you know, you just have to get really good at it. You can't have a person like working on every single model. You need to have systems that are essentially automatically training, running, and so on in order to do this. But that's what we built in house.
1: That's great. I want to ask about change management. Change is very difficult for any workflow. And... Especially for hospital workflows, change can mean things affecting people at a large scale and patients and patient care. When you go to a new hospital, say you should use ACASA, how do you discuss and end up with a change management process that is smooth in terms of transitioning to using a CASA solution?
2: We work with the health system to define a ramp up procedure whereby we will peel off tasks at a time. And we call it the triaging process. We install a CASA. CASA's first job is to triage work to itself. So it runs there, it says, okay, I can do this item. I can't do this item. And the health system you know, obviously works with us to decide which items are going to be sent to a CASA versus not. We gradually peel off work and automate that work and do it the same way their team would have done it and gradually build up that percentage over time It's not all at once where we just suddenly like pull a switch and everything is automated. And we don't do that partly because, like you said, that would be very surprising and, and, you know, it would be disruptive, right? And so it's better to gradually do this. And so everyone can adapt to what's happening.
1: And I want to ask about the same thing from a future of work perspective, where the hospital has employed these people whose job it was. Now, ACASA is doing... It's part automated, part with their own people. Do you think of going to the hospitals and saying, hey, the people who did this, have to work for a casa now?
2: Yes, we've totally thought about that. And we'll definitely try to do that in the future, for sure. I think that's a great idea. It's like rebadging them. What we found, though, is that these health systems can't hire enough of these people. Essentially, they have too much work to do as it is they can leverage these people in a variety of other ways too. So, Sort of like working directly with patients to help them deal with their bills and explain their bills to them. There's a lot of things that they would like to do if they didn't have to spend all of their time just doing this paperwork stuff. In other words, it's like there's more than enough work to be done so that even though we're adding a whole bunch of automation, there's still a lot of new things that they can leverage those people to do that you're just not able to do right now.
1: Yeah, I find it very interesting uh, that you said they move on to more interesting kinds of work and maybe not menial tasks which got me thinking about when you are looking at the impact of the CASA at an individual level or at the level of the hospital what kind of metrics do you track to show yourself or to other hospital systems hey here's the kind of improvement we bring to workflows uh
2: the top level metric is really hours of work automated so it's like how many hours of human labor was avoided by using a Casa instead. And we have a technology called Worklogger that we will actually record people doing the work, watch them do it with a piece of software that they intentionally use. They'll record these videos for us of the work that they're doing. When that occurs, essentially it's like a time and motion study. We automatically get how long each of these tasks would have taken. So what we can say is, okay, we completed 100 you know, tasks of type X. We know from these recordings that tasks take you know, eight minutes a task. So we can say, this is how many minutes of human time we saved by using ACASA. So that's like one top level metric. There are a lot of other specific uh, rev cycle metrics, like initial denial rate. So how many denials you could avoid? No one wants to send a claim, get it denied, and then deal with that. So can we avoid those denials in the first place? So those are some of the metrics that we observe and measure in order to show that ACASA is making a positive benefit.
0: So you guys integrate with EHR systems or whatever sort of system the hospital is already using at a given time. How does that impact your sales cycle? Are you selling to hospital systems? And then once you kind of win that deal, you have to go to the epics and Cerner's of the world and convince them to make the integration happen. I assume it's sort of a pretty close collaboration with these EHR systems to try to make sure that you can get their data in, in an effective and easy way.
2: So there are a couple of standard methods for extracting data from these systems. So all claims are already in a structured format called the 837. You know, it's a structured file that's sent to the payers. And then there's a, a response file that comes in. So for health systems, they're already sending that file to insurance companies or to clearing houses. They can send them to us. So like part of it, mm. this data can be extracted automatically. Like there are already rails in place to do that. So you're not tied by the EHR system necessarily. Not for everything is all I'll say. We are to a large extent tied to the EHR. The way we've chosen to integrate is actually to just simulate a human being. So the analogy I like to use is like the self-driving car, you know, one way to get self-driving cars super quickly in society is say a bunch of roads, no humans can drive on them. And we're going to put rails on the road. Right. And like, or, you know, magnets or something and self-driving cars can drive on those roads. People can't be there. And it would honestly work probably pretty great. I mean, honestly, you know, if you could actually like enforce all of that. Right. The problem is it's like Achieving that sort of great change at once is really hard, right? And so, instead, what we've chosen to do is rather than sort of change the system to suit us, we've changed ourselves to suit the system. We just say we're going to simulate a human being, so we're going to look at the computer screen the same way a person would, and we're going to use the keyboard and mouse the same way a person would. We're just going to use you have AI do that instead. It's like the self driving car at the end of the day internally is pressing an accelerator pressing the brake turning the steering wheel and it's seeing outside at the world you know of course it has lidar or cameras or whatever but essentially it's the same thing is it's like it's fitting into the human world and working the way a human would which then the benefit is it avoids having to do any deep integration specifically with any EHR because we're essentially just simulating people and because EHRs are actually uh There are a lot of them, but they're not like an infinite number of them, right? And so we don't have to do this every time. Like, you know, once you've covered uh, the top ones, you can sort of leverage these integrations over and over again. Are there other
0: regulations, though, and rules that you're sort of tied by? Because this feels like a whole new process of sort of getting around the normal data silos that exist within healthcare. Have you guys just like found this loophole that others haven't really thought about yet?
2: It's a, is it a loophole? I don't, I don't think it's a loophole per se. So robotic process automation, you may have heard this term, a UiPath is like a massive company. That is an overall trend that's occurring, not just in casa. Like we are a vertical specific automation company. Like we are solving this in healthcare, but this idea of use a computer the way people already do in order to create essentially artificial APIs on top of what's there hmm. um, is happening at a very large scale across the board. Like this is happening all over the place. And of course, like, if you think about it, historically Google kind of did this, right? Like they scrape websites, right? Like they're looking at the website automatically extracting information and then dealing with it for you. Kayak does this, like, you know, this is a very old idea actually, but I think what's making it work really well now is that AI has gotten good enough that we can solve the computer vision problems involved with doing this fairly easily. We can also, actually automate the tasks that are involved but what was also difficult before is just doing this work was not very easy with ai like a lot of these tasks actually require human decision making you know if i compare the self-driving car what we do is on the spectrum between self-driving car and like radiology radiology it's like you have to be trained for 10 15 years in order to do radiology right and like we're trying to automate that but that's like really hard and and we're making a lot of great progress and then on the other side of self-driving car most people can drive a car right so getting people to label the data Essentially, is like fairly straightforward. Anyone can look at a screen and be like, "That's a dog," or "That's a person," or whatever. We're in the middle where we're trying to automate something that more people can do than radiology, of course. Like there are many people working in this area, but it's not as many as a self-driving car. And so it's like AI has now gotten good enough for us to be able to do this task essentially and and, and be able to solve it. I'd love to
0: pivot a little bit to sort of the story of Acasa as your own personal journey and your your own journey as sort of a founder. So. To start, this is not your first time founding a company. You founded two AI companies before this that were acquired by Google and Udacity. So do you like have a great template now? Like this is how to start and sell a company. Like, how are you so good at this? And what do you like about starting companies? Uh,
2: uh, Well, I don't have a template, but I've learned a lot along the way. Why do I start companies? I think it's because I really enjoyed AI research and creating awesome algorithms. But what made me most happy is if those algorithms caused some impact on the world, um, like some human being or some system benefited from those algorithms. So one of the first things I did during my PhD as a complete side project, I wrote this app called Pro HDR with my friend Jesse Levinson. Um, it was like the first HDR app for the iPhone, right? And it, it used computer vision to merge images together. And you know, this was back in 2010. What made me really happy about that is, you know, we sold like a million apps and people got really, you know, they really seemed to enjoy it. And that made me feel very happy because it was cool to do something technologically difficult and then sell it. So that's kind of what motivates me to start companies. The other company I started my PhD was based on my PhD thesis. It was sort of an accident that it got sold to Google. I was still a PhD student at the time. We started the company and like we were about to raise money and start to build it out ourselves. And then you know we got this acquisition offer kind of immediately. We sold it to Google and I became a Google research scientist. After that, I worked there for a few years. I just got really interested in how do we make AI easier for everyone else to do? So getting access to a machine in the cloud with all the libraries and everything set up was really difficult. So that's how I started my next company and sold that one as well. I don't think I have a template. I guess I just look and see like, where are the things that I'm interested in matching some problem that seems to occur in the real world. I've learned a lot though, along the way in starting these companies. Akasa is, you know, honestly, I think the best one so far, you know, and hopefully I'm improving over time. So, and I think this one is going really great.
1: That's so awesome. to hear. So, what got you to the Acasa problem that you're solving right now?
2: Great question. Okay, so actually, while I was doing my previous company, I was thinking about AI in healthcare, and you know, I'd been following deep learning, like everyone else. I was looking at, okay, radiology—that seems cool. Like, you know, AI like could solve the radiology problem. As I started looking into it and sort of like other watching what happened to others, I realized like FDA regulation—it's a good thing, but it's Also, it will make things take a lot longer, right? It's sort of to build a company in these spaces takes a long time. And it also wasn't clear if the incentive structures were in place to, at that time, facilitate putting this technology into market. And so I started taking a step back and asking, is there a broader way I can make an impact on healthcare? So I knew I wanted to improve healthcare and I knew I wanted to do something with AI. Like those are the two things I knew. And I was thinking about, so what are the different ways to do that? I, I guess I read the news, you know, about administrative complexity in healthcare and how much it costs, and how like a large percentage of the balance sheet in healthcare is actually literally just dealing with all of the paperwork involved. And I thought, well, this is a place where health systems are super motivated to do something, right? Because this will help them avoid a lot of cost. You don't need to prove FDA regulation or anything like that because you know it's not like directly clinically facing but it would still improve healthcare and it leverages AI. So that's sort of how I ended up here. It was sort of just deriving it from first principles, like where can I apply AI in healthcare in the most efficient way? The idea is after that to start leveraging these relationships with health systems to start bringing AI in other places in healthcare. Um, essentially, this was a method of you know solving how do we start to add AI to healthcare in a gradual way that is like appealing to all the people involved.
1: Just to paint a hypothetical story, let's say, you know, someone identifies a problem as as you did with Casa, where the idea is to go into health systems, integrate with their data and showcase improvements that you can then bring to other health systems. How do you think about that very first customer? How do you think about stepping into a problem space without maybe having initial data, without having a proof of concept in terms of showing possible added value?
2: It's really hard. I will say healthcare is one of the hardest spaces to build a company. You know, based on how you're stating the question, it's like clear. It's like very difficult to do that, right? You have to solve a big chicken and egg problem. One thing I've learned in doing startups is to choose your customer very carefully. So make sure that you choose a customer that you know will be very replicable. Like the problem they have is a problem that many other customers will have. What can often go wrong is you solve a problem for one customer that actually turns out is just an unusual problem that's not uh, scalable. So that's one of the first things is to make sure you choose a problem really carefully that you're going to solve. In terms of getting that first customer, what we did was we were really fortunate. Um, We were able to get meetings with some uh, health systems that were very forward-thinking, like Sutter Health. And when we pitched them what we were going to do, they got really excited and were willing to support us and doing a brand new thing. And so you have to be really good at explaining your story about why you're going to help them and find um, a very forward-thinking health system that's like willing to innovate.
1: Does this mean, though, that you knew that if this was going to work, that you thought of the biggest risk that you might have in selling this, and you thought that's a risk that we could handle and successfully build something for? Hmm.
2: Did I know it was gonna work? (laughs) I mean, there were a lot of risks. Like I I wouldn't say that I knew for sure, but I will say that at a macro level, it made a lot of sense, right? Like they're spending a lot of money doing a thing. They're losing a lot of money because they're not doing it correctly. And so if we could solve that problem and I, I felt very confident that I could solve the problem. That's the part I knew I had in my control. I was like, you know, you give me a technical problem. Like I was pretty confident I could solve this technical problem. And I knew that there was a a macro level business need to solve the problem. I knew that there was no regulatory issue that would prevent us from doing it. But there's still, of course, just like the practical execution of risk of like, how do you actually go about doing it and getting the customer to allow you to do it? Right. Like, because they need to trust us. We're doing a very important function for them. And we need to make sure they feel comfortable the whole time. I think one of the key lessons I would give is, or things that I learned from this is really choose the team to be complementary and make sure that you cover all of your bases. A lot of companies just start with like two tech people and like, that's it. We made sure our founders included people who were experts in different areas. Um, one of the founders has been working and selling software to health systems for like a decade. And so they knew how to do that. Right. And another one of our founders had uh, worked on co- at council. Um, so he knows about how to like make sure that everything we do is like safe from a HIPAA perspective, how to be super secure. So ideally what I tried to do is find co-founders who really understood the space very well and could provide complementary abilities to myself.
0: So you raised your seed from A16Z.
2: Do you raise that seed
0: before even writing code for your first customer? Like, did you get your customer after bringing A16Z on or before?
2: I think it was before we deployed anything to that customer, for sure. Uh, we had not had anything running, but it was after I had already built some models. So we had obtained data There was some public data, but we also found a friendly health system who helped us with some data. And we were able to show that machine learning models were able to do something useful with it. And so sort of that help provide some proof point that we had some technology that was useful. But yeah, we raised our seed really amazingly on an idea, I think, is idea and team, to be honest.
0: But the reason I ask is just because I also imagine that helps when you're kind of going to a customer, you say, listen, we're backed by, you know, one of the top VCs in the world. We have some funding to be able to actually do this. We're not just four guys thinking that you know we could maybe do something here. Like you have some legitimacy behind you, which helps. And
2: yeah, hundred percent for sure.
0: So maybe speaking of your co-founders, I, I think it's like pretty rare to have four co-founders. You know, like mm-hmm. people always joke that having two co-founders is like a marriage, and mm-hmm. like. It, a lot of tension can come up. And I imagine like four is a family with like siblings. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what that dynamic is like and the good things about it, the tough
2: things about it, how you manage. I mean, to be honest, I, well, first I'm an only child, so I don't really know <laughs> what it's like to have siblings, but I think it's been great. I found it awesome. Um, in my previous company, I started it. I was one of the primary co-founders like, and I felt a lot of the load on myself. And it's been really great to have co-founders to help share the load in starting a company. It's a very intense thing starting a company, right? And it's really great when you have multiple people because if one person is feeling stressed out, someone else is feeling enthusiastic and jubilant. And so it's sort of it helps average everything out and, and carry us all forward. So I think it's actually been great. I uh, maybe I just got lucky with our co-founders, but so far it's just been great to have a team of people who are all motivated and working together to solve a problem and who also bring their own um, unique backgrounds. Like, like right, I bring AI and they bring a lot of, you know, the other things that I mentioned to the table. So it's been really great.
1: It's awesome. I wanna ask about your role as someone who has uh, received a PhD in artificial intelligence. And one thing we often hear in starting these companies is that one of the difficult things is getting the pipelines around data together And then one has the luxury of thinking about machine learning that's more advanced than a simple logistic regression. Ah. Um, I assume you have gotten to that point or a lot further since the company has been tackling some of the challenges around being robust and resilient to different health systems. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe the, the most interesting technical solutions that you're applying.
2: First, you're completely correct that before you can do a machine learning, you need to get the pipes connected so that data is flowing through. So what I focused on first was making sure that I could turn everything into input output. So essentially making sure that like I had a place where like I could plug machine learning in, in a spot, right? Machine learning generally its job is to take some, you know, X and turn it into Y, like F of X equals Y. And you choose parameters to do that. So what you fundamentally need is to take whatever you're trying to do and at least like break it up into pieces where there are these like X and Y's that are like present, right? And at first you can just plug a human being there. So the first thing we did was we said, okay, I can let a person substitute in for the X to Y conversion, right? Like I can't solve the problem before I have data, but I need to at least break the problem apart so that the data is flowing, like you said, so that there's a place where I can intercept and collect data, like watch. Okay, I'm gonna watch it right here and be like, cool. I know this input's coming in, this output's going out. I just need to have something that does the same thing there, right? And like that is automation. And so that's what we focused on doing at the very beginning is actually creating the system by which we could plug people in in order to collect that data. Once you do that, now you've completely separated the problem of like iterating on machine learning models from the deployment, right? Because you basically have said, okay, cool. I'm going to just have the machine learning model like this. It just needs to step in and like estimate why instead of having a person do that. And in our case of the Y is not just a number. Of course, it's like a very complex structured output. Like, you know, we need to extract like a whole bunch of fields from a document or we need to, you know, predict something. So like, it's a lot more complex than just, you know, predicting a number, but at least it's like broken down into an interface where I can plug more and more complex models and train them offline, see how well they work and essentially like start iterating at that point where I can like keep plugging in new models and making improvements. And so that was definitely the hard first part is like getting it to that point where I had the infrastructure to plug the models in. But once we've done that, we've been able to do really cool things. Like, you know, like we published a couple of papers on using deep learning to solve these hard problems but you can only do that once you've sort of set all of this up.
1: That sounds awesome. I wanna ask you a last question here, which is uh, if you have to imagine your ideal world uh, with the Casa in the loop in five years from now. Could you paint maybe a picture for what that would
2: look like? So I think the ideal world is that doctors can focus on providing health care to patients, like treatments and so on, and not have to worry so much about everything else that will happen involving the insurance company. And the way ACASA can help with that is first, solve all of that complexity, essentially model it, solve it and have AI deal with it. And then just provide the important information to the doctor or to the healthcare system as early as possible in the process. So that essentially they can know like what's going to happen before it happens. They say, all right, we're gonna do these services. Is it gonna get paid for or not? If it's gonna get paid for, how much is it gonna get paid for and how much will the patient owe? Like, If you could just know everything that's gonna happen at the very beginning, I think that will make everyone a lot less stressed out and the system will work way more smoothly. We even wanna be able to say things like, look, what you're about to do will get denied, but we know we can appeal it on the grounds of medical necessity. So you, should, you can still do it. And we know that our overturn rate will be you know, X percent. and So you should just go ahead and do it because it is medically necessary. My hope is that we would use AI to help solve a fundamental problem in healthcare, which is make sure the right services are done for the right patients and then it's paid for. We don't want unnecessary things to be done, but we don't want necessary things to not be done because of it. And so we just need to make sure the right things are done. And I think AI can help solve this like triple incentive problem that we keep talking about, right? Like where doctors want to just do one thing, payers want you know to pay as little as possible and patients, sometimes they want a lot of stuff done, but sometimes they're just afraid to go to the doctor because they don't want to get a surprise bill, right? Like both can happen. I would like to have AI sit in the middle and actually we can just decide like, what is the right thing to happen here? Right. And then AI can help serve to mediate that entire process and make sure the right thing is done. That's what I want Acasa to accomplish. And once we do that, the next step is really to help, you know, provide clinical decision support and things like that to help figure out what should be done even for the patient. So that's kind of what I'm hoping for.
0: We can't wait to follow Acasa over the years and Varun, thank you so much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.
1: And that's all folks. A big thank you to Dr. Ganapathy for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel, And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.
0: The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee and Mark Robbins. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.